Hi everybody, um, this is a very special episode because this is the last episode of the season. Now I don't want you to get alarmed, this is not the last episode forever, it's just the last episode for now. Um, today is very special because today is the day that you will be hearing my foster care story. Um, today I'm here with somebody who is very special to me, um, a friend, a co-worker, somebody who has really guided me into understanding how to actually work in the system. One of the best case managers I ever have known. I welcome Ebony McIntosh to the Life After Care podcast. Hi everyone. It's a pleasure, first of all, first and foremost, sitting here alongside of Miss Kalia Spence. Um, and it has been a pleasure thus far just watching her and observing her grow and prosper um, right in front of my eyes. Um, she's definitely a blessing to the entire um, child welfare field as a whole, and you guys are in for a treat. So let's get started. My life before care was extremely normal, actually. Um, I'm from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is outside of the northeast part of Philadelphia. I was born and raised there. I went to elementary school, middle school, and high school there. All of my close friends to this day are from there. It's practically all I knew. It was my mom. It was my stepfather at the time. And at the time, it was I'm, it was me and my three siblings, and I'm the oldest out of all my siblings. I think, uh, especially when it comes to being in foster care, a lot of the times people ask me like, oh, you were in foster care? Like, you know, what was your life like before? And when I tell them it's fair, it was extremely normal. It's, it's very shocking. I think people expect too much out of out of the situation than what it actually is how I entered the system, I would say it was because, so at the time, it, you know, as I said, it was my mother, it was my stepfather, and me and my three other siblings. Uh, my mother and my stepfather got divorced. I don't know why. At the time, I, I, I just knew one, one, one day I woke up and he just didn't come back. And I think that's when things started to come downhill. It went from being a two-parent household, um, you know, where my stepfather was working full-time and my mom was able to stay home with us and the kids, to now he's gone. My mom went from, you know, not working at all to now having to work full-time to take care of the house, to provide for four kids on her own. And I don't think people give the credit to where it's due on how difficult that that is for somebody when you, you it's a transition from going, you know, now there's two people, now there's only one. So I think that's really where it kind of started to take, I wouldn't say downhill, but started to shift you know, the kind of the way we function as a family. Um, you know, fast forward to the time where I was in middle school, that was really the time I feel like I had, you know, my most, most of my trouble, I, you know, as a teenager, there was things that I wanted that I knew my mom could not provide basically you know again I grew up in the county and it's and it's fairly different in the city it's very middle to upper class where you know everybody's has Hollister everybody has Uggs everybody has iPhones everybody has the latest of what can be the latest and you know I'm constantly surrounded by this stuff and constantly being reminded that 
you know, I have nothing. Not not to put it anything against my mother because, you know, now as an adult, I understand that as a single parent, you simply cannot provide the luxuries for your child. But at the time, as a middle schooler, somebody who was in seventh and eighth grade, I didn't really care about that. I more so looked at it, my mom can't afford these things for me, but I want these things. It was this constant thing. I would always constantly ask her and she would promise, but, you know, I would never get it. So, you know, in turn, I'm pretty sure I was in eighth grade at the time. I started getting in this habit of stealing, right? You know, my mom couldn't give me these these things, so I'm going to steal them. I think the I don't remember the first thing I ever stole or even if it's important in this in this conversation but I think the mo- the things that that I stole that made an impact on me and my family's lives was the beginning. So I wanted a cell phone really badly. Like everybody had an it wasn't even the iPhone era but every everybody had a phone. I'm a teenager, I want to talk on the phone. Um at the time I was in gym class and um, one of my classmates, she left her phone in um, the locker room, practically unattended, not locked up. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there. It's not like I'm like, oh, I didn't come with intent to steal anybody's phone, but it was there and it was something that I wanted. So eventually I stole it. Um, I remember stealing that, but also I remember, um, I think, another one of my classmates or somebody's locker who was close to mine, um, they had a Hollister bag. And at the time, Hollister was very big. This had to be 2012, 2013, the time that I was in uh, middle school. So Hollister was a very big thing in, 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 you know, upper middle class suburbia. So I saw her Hollister bag and I stole that. So, you know, all in all, I get caught stealing you know, it was, to me, it was one of the worst moments of my life getting caught stealing. My mom couldn't believe it. My family couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe it. I was very extremely embarrassed to get caught. So I was put on probation and, you know, part of my probation is, of course, I had to write apology letters and actually being, being on probation, the um, Hollister bag that I stole she was like the pol- uh, police officer's child or somebody at the top of the police station at, of Ben Salem Police. I stole her bag. So I got put on probation. I had to write apology letters. I had to do community service. And of course, uh, my probation officer had to check in with me like once or or twice a month or something like that. I remember me entering care. So me being on probation, um, my officer, he had to, my probation officer had to come to the house to see me. When he came to the house and, you know, met my mother, met my siblings and took a walkthrough of the house, there was things that he did not like. So he called Bucks County Children and Youth on my mother. And if anybody knows my mother, she is a firecracker and she did not like that. So she definitely gave him a piece of her mind. Um, you know, Bucks County Children Youth, they came, they did, they did their in- investigation and practically broke it down to my mother that, you know, gave her an ultimatum saying that, you know, we can either take your kids, you can find somebody to take your kids, or you and your kids need to go somewhere else because this house is unsuitable. In my opinion, I don't believe my house was unsuitable. You know, I was sleeping, I had a mattress on the floor, 
Um, I don't think I was sharing that mattress, but I might have been. My brothers had um, bunk beds, and I would sleep on the floor on a mattress. Um, that's the only clear thing I remember about the situation at the time. Um, I'm pretty sure our electric was on, our water was on, so I don't really understand why necessarily they took us away. Because I feel like nowadays... Even to this day, I feel like, you know, especially with black families, you know, dealing with the foster care system, there is a lot of bias and there is a lot of criticism on how black families live. So, you know, I didn't really understand. My mom didn't understand and my family didn't understand why we were taken. You know, they said there were some structural things with the home that made it unsuitable. And to my mom, it's like they're telling her to fix these things. But, you know, my mom works full time, so I, she's not going to fix these things a- anytime soon. So eventually, um, my aunt, she moved to New Jersey right across the bridge. Uh, so it wasn't far. It was probably like 20 minutes from my house. We temporarily lived with my aunt. And when I mean temporarily, like fake, we fake lived with her. So we would go to school. Um, we wouldn't go to school from her house, but we would go to school. We would come back. We would go to her house, but then we would go back home and spend the night at our house. And it was a constant thing. The only time we were really at her house over the night is when Bucks County Children and Youth and um, my probation officer came over um somehow some way they found out what was going on and they practically confronted my mom about it I remember my probation officer confronting my mom about it and I remember just a clear being in the car and watching my mom curse him out and it was the one of the most funniest things ever and then you know at the time it's like I felt like I was the cause of this I, and to this day, I am the cause of it. You know, me stealing has led to this unravel of, you know, having probation officers and Bucks County Children and Youth Workers in my mother's home. But my mom never, um, and I want to acknowledge this, like my mom never ever put the blame on me. It was never no sort of like, you're the reason why it's called, you're the reason this. Never did that ever happen. But, you know, I always felt that. So I don't remember the exact moment that they found out that we were actually not staying at my aunt's house. Um, the only thing I can remember vividly is, you know, me and my brothers were being, we're home, we're, we're at our home house. So the house that Bucks County Children Youth said we cannot go back to. We're at my house. Um, we're doing our homework. We're, you know, eating, whatever like this. And all I can hear is all these police sirens and all these cars zooming down our block. They surrounded my mother's house. And, you know, I remember looking outside and all these cops coming out and saying, we're looking for Miss Spence. Um, you know, your kids are being taken. I felt like, you know, to, the, to this day, it's one of the most embarrassing things ever for my mom to have to deal with. And it's it's very disrespectful because I don't necessarily think they had to go about those means to do that. And when I, when I mean, I feel like it was disrespectful. When I say it was like cop cars, there was like six cop cars. And mind you, that's not including the Bucks County children and youth workers. So my mom's dealing with all this going on. She's crying. All of us are crying. Um, they're telling us to pack our bags. You know, my brother's 
are being escorted into cars and you know we're being separated and all I remember is them telling me to go pack my bags and me not actually going to pack my bags I ran in the backyard in hopes that um you know nobody would find me and I clearly remember just crawling into a ball and rocking back and forth you know just rocking like oh my god like they're really about to take us away from our our mother you know I remember my mom my mom she came back to the backyard you know she was like oh it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay go back go pack your things and I remember an officer coming to the back and saying you know sweetie you have to go pack your things you know at that moment it's 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 a feeling that no kid that that no kid should have to deal with it it shouldn't be that extravagant of a, a or that much of a process to 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 tell somebody you you have to your kids are going to be taken i felt like they purposely did that to diminish my mom's character to 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 just show um, you know, overexert their power over her. And I, and I, you know, that's something that I could never forgive, you know, the agency for. Um, you know, once I packed my bags and got in the car, they drove us up the road. And, and where we live, we have this very long road that that spans over multiple counties and multiple towns. So we were driven up the road probably about 30 minutes. Um, it was me and um, my brother. We were put into a group home. Um, in this group home, it was like, it was one of those group homes where they, it was like owned by the agency, but they had people live in those group homes. So we were in the group home for the night. Uh, I don't really remember much about the group home. I remember being given like, a little like knickknack bag with like a small shampoo and a small deodorant, you know, like one of the like stuff you get at a hotel. Um, you know, they said take a shower, go to bed. You know, they gave us dinner. Um, we woke up. I don't think we went to school the next day, and I don't necessarily remember what we did. One clear thing I do remember about our first ever foster home is that they were very strict Christian type of foster parents. You know, they didn't have no TV, no electronics were allowed in the house, and I hated it. The next thing after that foster home, I remember um, them telling us again to pack our bags, and we went back to our neighborhood. One thing about my family is I have a lot of family, but I don't know any of them. So so um, we went to um, a cousin's house, but we called them aunt and uncle because they were like in their 60s, and mind you, me and my brothers, we were all under the age of 13. So they were aunt and uncle to us, and all, all of us were reunited back because when our first foster home, it was just me and my older brother and then my two youngest brothers were somewhere else so they all put us in in a home the home it it was very small it was similar to my mother's house and in in size and so what they did is all my brothers they slept in one room and had bunk beds and they never I never had a bed at this foster home I slept on the couch and you know it was going good for a, a, a while my mom's house was literally down the street um i could see my mom whenever i want 
and you know I, I was able to go to the bus stop but one thing I clearly remember is about going to school and being at a different home like at a different part of my neighborhood the people at the bus stop would constantly ask me like why are you coming from that way like I never see you coming out of your house anymore they were like I never see you coming out of your house anymore and I would all and I would always lie and be like oh you know I'm at my cousin's house. I go to my cousin's house in the morning, so that's the house I'm going to be coming out of. I never told anybody I was I was in foster care. That was going good for a while. I was still able to go out. I was still able to see my friends. I was still able to have fun, of course, dealing with all that um, when we got home. They were cool foster parents. I don't really, our kinship parents, whatever. Um, I didn't really, you know, have an issue with them, but at the same time I wanted to be home with my mom like I don't I didn't really care at this time because you know they alert your biological father your mother you know that you're in foster care if they are not together so my father's family um was alerted that I was in foster care somehow some way um I he got my cell phone number I think from my case manager or something like that and he would call me at all sorts of the night uh, at my cousin, my cousin's house or my aunt and uncle's house. He would call me on all sorts of night, 11 o'clock, one in the morning, calling me, asking me, you know, how I'm doing. Mind you, I don't know my father. The, the only recollection, the only memory I have of my father is me going up to, because they live in Harrisburg. So going up to Harrisburg to see him at like five years old, because I remember getting a dollhouse, Barbies, coloring books, um, stuff like that. So he would call me all sorts of the night. And um, my cousin, my aunt, um, she started to notice. And I remember her pulling me aside and having a conversation with me, asking me, you know, you're talking to boys, you know, how's that going? And I'm you know, I'm telling her I'm not talking to no boys. That's literally how I said, I'm not talking to boys. It's not going no way. She asked me if I was having sex. I was like, I know I'm not having sex. But I knew she was asking me that because my father was calling me all sorts of the night. He was calling me all sorts of the night. So she was assuming that I was talking to boys, but not, she didn't know I was talking to my father because I didn't want my mother to know that I was talking to my father because, you know, my mother and my father don't get along. So I just said, I don't talk to boys. I'm not having sex with no boys and stuff like that. Time passes on. This is a, a situation happened to where I was taken out of the house. So as I said earlier, I, I was the only person who slept on in the living room on the couch. I never had a bed. So I was sleeping on the couch. And one thing about their couch is it's very uncomfortable. So oftentimes I would just go uh, uh, sleep on the, on the floor. But, you know, at this time I was probably like 13, 14 maybe. Or f I was, I think I was 14 going on 15. And at this time I had a very weak bladder. So I would always have to get up in the middle of the night and it, it, to um, use the bathroom. And what made it worse is that I was a deep sleeper. So I needed somebody to wake me up, you know, at certain increments of time if, if I didn't have an alarm set so that I can use the bathroom. So I, this particular night I was sleeping on the couch. The couch was extremely hard and I went on the floor. This had um, a colder... I'm, I'm assuming this was after Christmas because I remember them having a fireplace near the couch and the fireplace was on. So I slept on the floor, you know, passed out. I remember waking up and there was this feeling 
of like somebody like gripping my my genitals right so they somebody was gripping my genitals and like I have very vivid dreams so I thought it was a dream at first but like I op- I kind of squint open my eyes and my cousin aka my uncle who's a 60 year old man is uh, on on his on his fours like dogs dog style or what cat the animal style or whatever on his hands and knees literally physically over me with his hand on my on my vagina and I'm in my mind I'm like what the f is going on like what is he doing so you know I'm like okay maybe I'm maybe I'm dreaming maybe I'm dreaming so I roll over closer to the fireplace and this is how I remember because it was hot I roll over closer to the fireplace but he crawls over and puts his hand back in my vagina this is over this was over my pants so he wasn't under my pants and I'm sitting there like what the so he notices me waking up and he's like Kalia go to the bathroom go to the bathroom so I'm like okay so I grab my phone, I go in the bathroom, I call his wife, and I, and I literally said on the phone, um, you know, miss whatever, your husband is touching me. And she's like, what do you mean? And I said, your husband was on his hands and knees trying to touch my vagina. And, you know, she was freaking out like, oh, my God, oh, my God, stay away from him. That dirty bee cursing and stuff. Clea, I'm not I'm making sure you're not going to get hurt. Stay away from him. Stay away from him. So I stay away from him. And, you know, in the midst of this, I um, call my mom and let my mom know what's happening. Of course, you know, it's 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 a parent's worst nightmare for their child to be not only taken away from them, but something to happen to their child why they're not in while I'm not in her custody so she was too I mean floored she was floored she was very upset cursing screaming but mind you at the time where um he was touching me I look up and that there's porn on the television and um I remember clearly because they had direct tv so it was direct tv and there's like a porn channel on the television and he was drinking that both of my kinship parents would always drink and would always constantly go to the bar so um I don't vividly remember the next days ahead I do remember going to the police station and doing an uh, interview you know they asked me the questions I don't remember the questions but I I told them like it is and if people know me they know I'm not a very emotional person and um, I think um, that was kind of a disadvantage because after I did the interview you they didn't remove me from the home they didn't remove me and my brothers from the home um, he wasn't rem- he wasn't told that he had to leave until the investigation was over so mind you I was going back to the house and he was still he was still in the house so I think they felt like oh because I could still be in the house with him it's not a problem or maybe because of my lack of emotion when telling like you know, he clearly touched me. It wasn't like super emotional that they didn't believe me. So, um, come to find out my kinship mother, my aunt, um, told my case manager at the time who I don't remember who she was, but she told my case manager that I talk to boys all sorts of the night and that I'm running around going out with my friends and having sex. 
and having unprotected sex and she had to give me condoms so that I can um, be controlled. So my, I didn't really, I never really had a uh, relationship with my case manager. So she believed the word she said, the cops believed whatever, whatever the side of the story um, he had. And um, I remember them, I remember coming back to the house, sitting on the couch, my kinship mother, my aunt, cousin at the time telling me to come upstairs I came upstairs he was upstairs and she was like Clea I want you to have a conversation with him because he would never do that he told me oh Clea you you know you must be seeing things or whatever because I would never do that to you and I'm just sitting there like yeah whatever I know what I felt I know what I saw and you can't tell me no different and it's, it was to the point where like everybody was pushing it in my face, trying to make me question myself. But I was like, I, I, I know what happened. What Bucks County Children and Youth decided to do is they decided to take me out of the home and leave my brothers in the home. Um, that he never got any charges pressed against him. There was never nothing. So I went into a group home, AKA Valley, Valley Youth House. I was in Valley Youth House for about a year. Um, I believe I was 15 at the time because I remember being discharged from the group home and going to live with my aunt in um, Philadelphia when I turned 16. I was there from about 15 to 16. And at that time, of course, entering a group home is like one of the worst. It's like kids everywhere, um, you know. I, I just remember just not talking to anybody for the first couple of days. But overall, my experience in the group home, I had a very um, good experience. Um, one thing my counselor always said is she felt like I didn't deserve to be in foster care or I didn't even deserve to be in this group home because of my behavior, because of just how I present myself, that, you know, I'm not the typical type of, I guess, teen in foster care that she usually sees comes through these doors and in the group home you know we went to the mall we went on trips um we went to the city we we did a whole bunch of fun things that I feel like you know working at working at you know in foster care now I don't hear a lot of um group homes do I had a lot of fun you know in my group home overall and I was discharged around my birthday and I lived with my aunt um, I remember clearly it had to be September because I was transferred to a new school and the school year already started. So I was kind of in the mid, like two weeks behind everybody else. Um, one thing, my living at my aunt's house was fine. I have a cousin who's the same age as me. So, you know, and it was family. So I didn't really have no issue with it. The only issue I, I really had was uh, the, the school I was at. So I remember being discharged back to my mom. I remember it was November cause I was only in the school for two months and I was very excited. Um, I was discharged back to my mom at 16. Well, what we call it now in, at, at, you know, DHS, it's called aftercare. So we had aftercare services, uh, for three months and, you know, the case was closed. Um, so coming back home, it wasn't really any different. Again, we have a fairly normal household. The only thing I say was different is that my mom started 
this pattern of dating um, men or that were not suitable for her. I feel like one thing about me is I can always tell if a relationship is, is very toxic. So my mom would constantly be in toxic relationships with men that I hated. One thing I always had to constantly go through is, you know, witnessing my mom getting hit or witnessing my mom getting abused or witnessing her um, fall for. So it was this constant thing of watching them constantly fight. And when I mean fight is, you know, physically, so that was one thing that made me not want to be in the house. So when I was 17, um, one thing that her partners at the time would do is to get back at her, they would call call the hotline. So one time they called the hotline and I think at this time we might have had no water or it was no electricity. It was one of the or. So my mom, I think she broke up with them and they called the hotline and said that she has no water or they, she has no heat or whatever. So they came in the house and they took us again. Um, I remember being taken and um, we went, me and my older brother, my second oldest brother went to a foster home up in Doylestown. And so we were in a foster home with them for a while. This was one of my favorite homes. You know, while I still wanted to be home, they treated me and my brother fairly. One thing I didn't like is being in Doylestown. I had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning every single day, get on the bus at 5 a.m just in order to get to school at 7.30. So I would literally be at school an hour and a half earlier before everyone else. And then one thing is like after school, they would, on the microphone, they would call my name. They'd be like, Kalia Spence, your bus is here. And I hated that because all my friends would ask me, they'd be like, why do you get your name called about a bus? And I'm like, oh, that's because I go to a youth program. So, you know, I go to a youth program, whatever. So, you know, I have my, I have to go on a, a, a bus with other kids from other high schools. Shortly after being in that home, my, my case manager at the time told me that I was eligible for something called independent living. And mind you, I'm 17 at the time, turning 18. So I was applying to colleges. I applied, I applied to every HBCU on, on the, um, Eastern part. And so at the time I was applying to colleges and they told me that I was, that I could do independent living. I could so I asked them what's that and practically they told me it was, you know, a program where you learn about skills as an adult and, you know, once you do that, you you get, they, they pay your rent, you know, at, from 18 to 21. Um, at this time, um, all my brothers and sister were discharged back home, so they kind of gave me this option, like, you can either go back home or you can stay in care and get and get independent living. So I went through the life skills classes. They, they taught me everything about opening up a bank account, um, how to eat healthy, um, how to manage my money, how to get into college, you know, job skills, all of that. So once um, I graduated, I was eligible for independent living. At, th at this time, I was taking my independent living classes. I moved from Doylestown to another one of my aunts, a bio aunt house in the northeastern part of Philadelphia. So it, it was much closer, me and my older brother. And that was that was fine, too. I didn't really um, have any uh issues there. So once I finished my independent living classes, this was the time I was graduating from high school. So um, I decided I wasn't going to go out of the state 
to go to college because I wanted to do independent living and I wanted them to pay for my rent and, you know, assist me until I'm 21. So I was, I decided I'm going to go to community college. My experience with independent living was amazing. Um, They paid $900 of my rent. They assisted me in getting my first car. They gave me $100 in food every month. They paid for my school books. Anything I ever needed, I could call my independent um, living coach and they would practically purchase. Uh, They gave me clothing stipends every three months so I was able to get clothes. It, It was something that like, Kids who were never in foster care, I had more than my friends who never even even got a taste of what being in foster care is. And I think just being an independent living and not having to focus on where am I going to live, where am I going to stay, how am I going to eat, how am I going to pay for my school books, that helped me really focus on um, my education. So at Delaware County, I, I studied... I studied communications. You know, I always knew I wanted to help people and I was kind of geared to either education or social work, but I didn't want to be tied in that exact field. So I said, I'll just be a communications major. Um, I went to Delaware County Community College. I studied communications for two years. Um, At the time, I was working at a shoe store, but I decided, you know, I wanted something else. So I was on Indeed, and I seen this position for a youth advocate for um, the Department of Human Services for one of their CUAs in the city, and I applied for that. That position was practically somebody who was in foster care, you know, assisting um, other foster youth and, and whatever concerns they had. So of course I got that position and that really kind of transitioned my whole career path and kind of how I really was in tune with my experience being in care, you know, my experience, you know, of the type of person who I am and what, what I can do. So, you know, long story short, I transfer um, to Temple University where I continue to study communications, but I focus on, more so I focus on advocacy. And anybody will tell you is that I work a lot and I put work above anything else and, I'm, and that's because I need, I need to sustain myself for the future. So junior year of um, being at college at Temple University, this was the year, junior year of college um, at Temple University, this was the year that I was aging out of care. I had one more year left, so that was one thing I was so worried about. I was like, I have an apartment, my rent is 725 750 I'm making 750 I'm in school, like, there's no possible way I can work full-time, and I'm not trying to be stressed out. So one thing I think my independent living... Um, coaches for us they stressed about they stressed me about saving so I had about four thousand five hundred five thousand dollars in savings so once I was discharged that's literally what I survived off of I survived off of my savings and I survived off of my refund checks from Temple and practically I said I have a year and a half of school left I'm about to be a senior This next year is all about me finding a job so that way I'm not struggling anymore. But I graduated from Temple University May 2018 with a bachelor's in strategic communications that focused on rhetoric and public advocacy. And I was able to secure a position um, as a life skills coach uh, for the city of Philadelphia.
one thing that um, I always advocate for, especially you know, having experience being in the system to now working in the system is one thing I want to see the state of Pennsylvania do and, you know, the, the, the country is create a more universal independent living program for kids who sign board extensions and extend their out of out of home care until the age of 21 because one thing I noticed is while I was receiving amazing amazing services from Tabor Children's Services in um, Bucks County my friends my colleagues the other youth advocates that I knew were not they didn't have the same experience as me. They 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 were never able to get $900 of their rent paid for. They only got 3. They were never assisted with buying a getting a car paid for. They never was able to get $200 in groceries like I did. They only got 50. They they never had their books paid for. They never had this, they never had that and I'm I always had it. Even when I was in D.C. advocating and hearing other people's stories, one thing that always came to my mind is they didn't have that while they were in independent living, but I did. So, um, you know, I feel like it's very important in order to see, you know, every every child in foster care over the age of 18 to 21 succeed uh, in life. The Fostering Connections to Success and Increasing Adoptions Act was signed into law in 2008. This law provides states with the options to continue providing Title IVE reimbursable funds to children up to the age of 21. This allows independent living programs to assist young adults in care up to 21 so they can develop the skill they would need to become productive and healthy adults. Youth usually get to live in an apartment or house within their community while working and continuing their education. These services are designed to provide former foster care young adults with the skills to reduce the likelihood of things like homelessness, teen pregnancy, unemployment, and other negative consequences young adults may face without proper guidance or support. I just want people to think, you know, of of this possibility, whether you're a social worker, um, you know, you're somebody who can change policy or you're just, you know, somebody like me who just advocates for certain things. If you could imagine, right, one thing I always say is, you know, I don't feel like statistics are important, but in the fiscal year of 2017, the year that I aged out of the system, 19,000 other kids did the same thing I did. What services are those 19,000 other kids receiving after they age out of care? Because as most people know, you know, when we age out of care, we have to deal with a multitude of things, not only dealing with ourselves, our mental health, our sta- our stability, our relationship, our broken relationships with our family, all that other stuff, we're going to have to survive. And it's like, what, while, what is the system doing to help us survive? It's sad, it's good at the same time that we allow states to govern their own foster care policies, but at the same time, one state might have everything for a child while another state might not have not. So if you could imagine, if I was in one of those states who do not offer independent living services after the age of 18, I would not be able to survive. I would not be able to have these degrees that I have. I would not be able to be working because I would have had to drop out of, I would have had to drop out of college. Honestly, I would have had to been working full time minimum wage. I would have 
have been having to work multiple jobs. I probably would have not even been able to get a car. And that's one thing like I want people to think of is because I only grew up five minutes from the city line receiving a multi- different services to somebody who grew who grew up five minutes in the city line. What services are they going to receive that's different from somebody who's from the county? And I know like it uh, costs the country a lot of money, but in in turn, it's it's what's best for society. Mark Courtney, author of "Do the Benefits of Extending Foster Care to Age 21 Outweigh the Cost," states that the youth aging out of foster care are much more likely than other young people to become pregnant at an early age, become homeless, engage in criminal behavior, and have involvement with the criminal justice system. Their study, which examines differences among states whose youth are discharged from care, has shown that extending care to the age 21 is associated with a 38% reduction in the risk of foster girls becoming pregnant between 17 and 19 years old, delayed homelessness between ages 17 and 21, reduced criminal behavior, arrest and justice system, involvement among women in early adulthood, and among foster youth who become fathers, greater involvement with their children. I want to highlight something um, that was said in a meeting. So as we all know with the recent changes in foster care law we have been given a lot of opportunities to expand and change the way foster care is governed and in this meeting we were talking about if we should extend foster care past the age of 21 and the opportunities not only would it be um given to 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 the just the opportunities that it would be given to the youth you know across the state of pennsylvania and a woman stood up and she or a woman spoke and said, you know, I don't necessarily think we should because it's going to cost more money. We don't have the money and we can't provide services to everybody. Um, And one thing that popped in my head is like, of course, we're not going to have enough money to, 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 to provide service to everybody, but it's the ability to give a youth a chance. Because of course, not every youth is going to take this this opportunity is not going to understand what this opportunity can give to their lives but it's about just having the opportunity there if if somebody didn't tell me about the opportunity I don't know where I would be now yes it's going to cost more money for the state yes we're going to have to find or somewhere to get the money from but it's about those opportunities because if you think about it this way because even even I experience it I I ask a kid if they want to do this and they say no but it's just the point of me asking because me asking somebody's going to say yes and that's going to change somebody's life instead of not offering it at all so what is being done to enhance the outcomes of youth who age out of foster care the National Conference of the State Legislators states that 25 states currently extend foster care through the Fostering Connections Act. However, a majority of states do allow for state-funded extended foster care, such as transitional living services, housing and educational assistance, and with the recent passing of the Family First Prevention Service Act. 
States may use John H. Chafee Foster Care Independence Program Funds for youth up to 23 years of age who have aged out of foster care. My life after care is pretty amazing. Uh, my mother has been reunified with all of her children. She is in a very healthy relationship. But, you know, her she owns a business that is very successful. And in regards to me, um, I was able, you know, to be hired in, as a life skills coach where I work with youth the ages of 13 to 21 in the city of Philadelphia. You know, I'm very stable other than that. I've been able to be blessed with, you know, having my own apartment, having my own car, and, you know, just being able to, to live a normal life. I think just, just being in foster care has, it, of course, it has been a, a curse. And it's something, you know, I wish that never had to happen but at the same time a blessing because I was able to be given the opportunities to be doing this podcast to be working in in foster care to be able to have the life that I have now I wouldn't change anything of how anything went um, I'm the type of person you know life is life and that how it goes and it's just really about you know kind of how you can transition yourself to be better and you know what's next for me is one thing about me is I'm very like a type of serial entrepreneur what's next for me is just you know exploring more entrepreneurial activities so eventually I can spread my reach and you know advocating for foster care and you know just being able to sustain myself financially even better. Advice I would give to youth in care is really just to to have control over your life. I know a lot of the times we think, you know, we don't have control. It's important that you just step in and advocate for yourself and make sure that your voices are being heard and that you're stern in your stance of what is happening to you in your life. Because at the end of the day, the only person who knows what's going on is you. And you have to be open and you have to be respectful of, of your case manager. And you have to build relationships that, so that can people help you. So that in the future, you won't be out on the streets. You won't be having to deal with prison systems. You won't be having to deal with being unemployed. Make connections, meet people, do a lot of internships. Um, other than that, I think, especially if you're somebody who is not going to be reunified, is just, just to make sure that you set yourself up for the future. This situation is very hard. And in, in the moments, you're not going to be thinking about any of this. Because one thing I want to see is I want to see every child and care be successful and, 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 and have a fruitful life. Make sure you address your trauma in whatever aspects you can and just heal. Because while you might not forgive the people for what they have done to you, you need to just let go and forgive those situations so that you can move on for yourself. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the last episode of the season of the Life After Care podcast. This is your host, Kalia Spence. And your co-host, Ebony McIntosh. So, um, Ebony, how do, you, how do you feel about this, this whole process? I feel absolutely amazing. It has truly been a pleasure 
to sit alongside of you and observe you just break down all the ins and outs of your personal experience um, and letting the outsiders get a glimpse of Kalia's life. It's It, it was really um, humbling. Yes. So... Um, as most of you know, this has been a very long journey for me, and I and I hope to continue this further. This season is coming to a halt for now, but I am looking for people who are interested in telling their story or interested in doing anything that has to deal with foster care. I'm definitely an open book, but you can contact me at contact at lifeaftercarepodcast.com and I will definitely be able to respond to you as quickly as possible um, so we can get started on the next season and, and hearing more young people's voices and hearing more experiences so in hopes and turns that we can get our social workers and our legislators and our stakeholders to really understand what it's like to being in foster care. So make sure you check us out on www dot lifeaftercarepodcast.com make sure you follow us on instagram at lifeaftercare on twitter at lac underscore podcast and make sure you subscribe to our email list to get the latest updates on episodes and just new things coming on this is your host Kalia Spence this is a sad farewell but I hope to see you guys again soon Mm -hmm.